0: My name is Brian Scott, I'm the lead pastor here. I am excited to jump into God's word this morning. We're gonna be in Jeremiah chapter 29. As we continue our vision, the, vi- the series entitled Our Vision, and uh, we will see today's focus is on the community aspect of our our uh, mission statement, and we'll, you'll see what I mean by that. Um, anyways, but we're in Jeremiah chapter 29, that's on page 382. In your Pew Bible. And you can obviously look on the screen. I need to turn there myself. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this morning as we've sung an earnest prayer, open the eyes of our heart. Lord, would you open our hearts to see you, to hear from you, to receive, uh, to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Je- Je- Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. My wife, who is serving in The explorer's room this morning is half Korean and half white. Her dad is from Korea. Uh, Her mom is American. And her dad is actually from the North. And so he's the youngest of, I think it's, you know, eight kids. Uh, When he was nine years old, the Korean War had started. And if you're familiar with the history, there's, there's communist invasion, Uh, And so the conflict is over that ideology. And as a family, they were doing well in Pyongyang. Um, I think they were doing very well, in fact. But upon war, they fled. They left everything. Um, They walked from Pyongyang to Seoul and had to reestablish life there. Uh, He was nine years old. So just imagine that world from the eyes of a nine-year-old and the experience and He grew up in Seoul, in South Korea, and then immigrated here to the United States, um, and subsequently got married. All of his siblings, in fact, I believe immigrated here. In 2019, my wife, who's the youngest of three, um, three daughters, uh, she and her sisters got to travel to Seoul with their dad, and he had been back to Seoul before, but it was his first time visiting what's called the DMZ zone, that's the area that um, it's demilitarized, it's it's basically, you go there and you can see North Korea. You can see the shore. Um, you can see what's going on, or you can't see what's going on, but you can at least visualize. Uh, it was his first time visiting that and seeing some of the bridges and some of the tunnels that would, you know, connect the two territories. And it was a very emotional experience. And he's, you know, broke down. That's the eyes of reflecting, it's, it, it's, it's entering into the world of a refugee. And if you think about a refugee, if you think about, you know, we, we, we look at the displacements that are happening in our world, there's a mindset, there's a mentality. When you are a refugee, your emotions are attached to the land that you left, not the one that you are in currently. I mean, perhaps if you, on your own volition, are fleeing some type of conflict, you are very grateful for the new place. However, as th- what's in the background of this story, and this letter that Jeremiah is writing to these refugees, these exiles, um, they did not flee on their own volition. They were, they were extracted. They were forcefully removed from their homeland. And there's an instruction that's given here. And that instruction is informative for us as Christians living in a pluralistic society where there are lots of different ideologies, And it really helps to frame, what does it mean to live faithfully? How do we approach our city? And so um, the title of this message is Seeking Shalom. Seeking Shalom, I'll explain what that means. But there's three things to be thinking about here. Number one is, as it relates to our community, and I would um, use as a synonym for our community, the city or the twin cities. uh, Sovereign. We need a sovereign perspective. The sovereign perspective on life, on things, on reality and existence. Secondly, pursuing shalom that's present here in the text. What does that mean? And then thirdly, the coming shalom. So something different than the pursuit of it. So a sovereign perspective, pursuing shalom, the coming shalom. We've been doing this series and we've been making contact with our church's mission statement um, to see campus and community transformed by Christ to renew the world. And as we've been going through this, my objective has been to really ground that in the gospel, to ground that in the scripture, because our, our goal here is not to prop ourselves up as a church and look at ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. That's not the goal. The goal is how do we, how do we, how do we engage our, ourselves, one another, what the reality of who Jesus is, how do we see our lives be transformed, and how do we engage the world around us? What does that look like? What does Scripture say about that? If we think about mission, um, you know, you could say, well, is the word mission even in the Bible? Yes and no. I mean, it comes from a Latin word that means to send. And when you read the Scripture, the concept of sending uh, certainly is in the Scripture, in the New Testament, there's a, there's a word that would refer to that, apostello, is the verb form. But Jesus is sent by the Father into the world. Jesus sends His people into the world. And so we are a missional people, or we are a people who are on a mission. It's important to understand that as we celebrate 90 years. So first of all, let's consider a sovereign perspective. What does that mean? What is Jeremiah instructing? The exiles in having the right perspective of their present reality. What does that mean for us? Who's so, the sovereign? What is a sovereign? A sovereign is someone who is in charge. They have absolute rule. They're the they're, the buck stops here, right? They are the person that is in charge. Who is really in charge? And in our present day, that is the crux, the question about the cultural war. It's this wrestling, this. Hema, hema, homogeny, hegemony. Sorry. Um, God bless you. Um, in the cultural war, who is going to who's going to who's going to win? Who is who's going to score the most points? Who's going to get the most people? You know, in, in positions of power. That's the cultural way. Of, that's the approach, right? But as Christian and Christians, unfortunately, get caught up in that. But as Christians, how do we view who is in charge? What does that mean for us as we think about our community? Uh, who really is in charge? Well, I mean, you could say, okay, well, you know, there's Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he, obviously he's in charge. So how how do these, who's a pagan leader, how do the people of God who are called to be faithful to their God serve in this pagan society when there is a pa- pagan leader? I mean, he's the guy in charge. You know, he's not a fun guy to be around. He's not the person you would be following on social media, by the way. And so... So what does that mean? And for, and for us, you know, we, th- we say, to see campus and community transformed by Christ. There's an underlying assumption about who's in charge in, in that, but you could say, is that a statement of defensiveness? Like, are we just kind of against the culture and therefore, you know, that's our posture? Because that certainly is a prevailing posture. Uh, it can be among Christians. Uh, or it's certainly not a statement of assimilation. Like, in other words, we're not just trying to be like, we're, we're, we say we want to see the tr- campus and community transform, so it's not assimilating, it's not that. Is it, is it a statement of triumphalism where it's like, hey, as long as we get Christians in charge of everything, like, we're good? Is that what it is? Is it a statement where, you know, is our posture to the community just ignore the problems, kind of huddle in our Christian um, sub- sub, you know, enclave, keep our heads down? Uh, Is it to maintain our purity from the culture, from the the community? What is our posture? All right, so that's the question. And, And it's based on understanding who's in charge. So let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar for a minute. So you see, you see that in the start of this letter, some of the details. Jeremiah, who is a prophet, he sends a letter from Jerusalem. So just think about the geography for a moment. Jerusalem, that's obviously in, in Judea. And he's sending this letter, verses 1 through 3. He's explaining it's to the priests, to the prophets, the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, we'll talk about him in a second, has taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's about 1,000 miles away, pagan land. And it was after, so he's telling actually a time frame, it was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem, and it tells us by whom or through whom the letter was sent, right? So the, this, this is actually telling us a historical time frame. So we know that this letter was sent sometime after 587, five, I'm sorry, 597 BC. We know that because of what he said. Uh, there were, so so there were, the Babylonian Empire came into power in the 7th century BC. And in coming into power, it started taking over, taking charge, and taking names. It, 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 it overcame Egypt. It overcame a lot of the surrounding areas. It became this this uh, superpower and Egypt, by the way, was the sort of prevailing superpowers, or one of them. Certainly, Assyria was another. But Babylon comes along and starts gathering up territories and peoples. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he was a he had tremendous military prowess. You see, the Assyrians had predated the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, what they would do is they would go and they would they would take a land and they would wreck shop or, you know, take over, destroy things. And they would take all the people who were in the newly conquered territory and bring them into the center of their empire. And meanwhile, they would take folks that were a part of the heartland of their empire and send them out to the newly conquered territory. And that was their way of consolidating their gains, ensuring that there is no way that the people that we've just conquered can fight back. There's no way that they can revolt. There's no way they would be able to uh, come along and have enough agreement because we've just mixed up all the peoples. They're not going to come and have enough unity to fight back. The Babylonians had a different strategy. They didn't mix all the peoples up as the Assyrians did. And so when Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, he does what he has normally done. He takes the nobles, the nobility, And he takes the skilled people, the skilled workers, and he takes them out of the land and he exiles them and he leaves the lower classes and divides the land up among the lower classes. And so for for Judah, he's done the same thing. And we see that these are cultural leaders who have made this trek from Jerusalem to Babylon. He's left sort of the lower parts of society back in Jerusalem. That's how he's going to keep his power, consolidate his power. He's got all this prowess. He's a pagan leader, and now God is saying to his people, "You're going to need to seek the shalom of that city." Um, and, and if you can imagine, okay, so we just we we talked a little about like the mindset of a refugee, of traveling on foot for hundreds you know a thousand miles in this case by force what's your mindset about the new place it's animosity it's i can't believe this and yet god is going to call them to have a self a shalom seeking mindset about that and so so that's that's the setting but what's so what's but, but who's in charge? Okay, so, so here's the point. Verse 4, the Lord of hosts, he says this. The God of Israel, he says this. This is, this is Yahweh. This is what he says. To all the exiles, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's saying, I did that. I mean, can you imagine the emotional uh, consternation? Wait a minute. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the, all the anguish, all of the tearing, all the emotional turmoil of being ripped out of your land and being extracted and, and being forced to go to a new land. And by the way, all the undertones of the fact that in the previous land, this was God's land for His people, and now this is this pagan nation, God saying, I did that. That's disorienting. But it is actually, if, we, if you get past the emotional disorientation, it's actually comforting. Because it's, what it's saying is it doesn't matter who's in charge on the ground. It doesn't matter who Nebuchadnezzar is or what he represents or what he does. It doesn't matter who's up for election. God says, I am in charge. As Christians, we ought to, we ought to be the most level-headed people in society if we understand this one point. So whenever, and thankfully, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's an odd year, like 2023, you know, there's no election coming up. Um, in the sense that, you know, that's when things get charged. But this is, it's like a good time to talk about it. Like, okay, emotions are low. So the next time, hey, who is in charge? That, that ought to frame our approach. It certainly frames our approach so we're not about it's not about triumphalism it's not about hey all get all the christians and it, it's which is not to say on the other side it's not to say that we shouldn't engage in public policy or in politics or that's not what we're saying either but it's just helping us to be rooted in this one reality that god is sovereign he is sovereign he is in control he's got a plan when we think about ukraine we think about you know turkey and syria i mean it's, yeah, that is heart-wrenching. And, and it's heart-wrenching because part of it is to reconcile that reality with the fact that God is sovereign is an admission that there's part of God's will that is hidden from His people. We don't know it all, but, we, but there is part of His will that's revealed to us. We know how it will end. We know what His ultimate goals are here, and we pray for uh, certainly those lands and those places. So, we've established who is in charge. God is in charge. He is sovereign, sovereign. And what is he asking? So, number two, pursue or pursuing shalom, point two. So, the change in perspective began in recognizing God is the one who sent them, but now he's, he's digging deeper and starting in verse five, because he's saying, build houses, live in them plant gardens eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and your daughters in marriage multiply don't decrease the context the context is there's these false prophets who've been going around actually if you just flip back one chapter we won't look at it today but in chapter 28 these false prophets who've been saying hey you know what god he's got this he's going to crush Nebuchadnezzar in 2 years hey you're going to be back home don't worry I don't know about you, but when I go on a trip, you know, like uh, whatever, it's visiting, even if it's visiting family, you know, or you go somewhere, you're in a hotel. Personally, I don't ever really unpack. I have my clothes in the bag, and then it's like, you know, the next day comes, I just pull out what I need, and then I do my, you know, go through the day, and then same thing the next day. I don't it's, there's this mentality. I'm not going to be here very long. What's the point, Right? You know, if maybe if you're if you're a germaphobe, even though you're like thinking about, okay, I wonder what was in this dresser before, so it's like I'm gonna just keep my clothes to myself, kind of thing. I wash them. But there's a there's a mentality, and so there's a mentality if you're thinking, hey, we're only gonna be here for a little while. Why really, why be vested? But God is saying, no, you need to change your perspective. Number one, I, I not only did I send you here, you're gonna be here for a while. don't just be a renter, be an owner. Don't be a, 12, a, a tent dweller, live here, build houses, dwell in them, plant a garden, eat from it, you know, get married. To say that, I recognize in a church setting, there's a lot of things I probably should say beyond that because not every, that's it's not as easy as, okay, I'm going to go get married if you're single. I, 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 I know that. I, I understand, okay? I'm not, you know, this is not one of those speeches. But the point is, whether you are married or single, have a, have a shift in your mentality, okay? And for some of us here, and we, Champion urbana is transient. And it's been cool to to watch this on some individual levels where there's been, in some of your mindset, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get out of here, I'm looking to move back home, and then eventually it's like, well, I haven't moved back home, and then the pandemic hit or what have you, and it's like, man, I'm still here. Maybe I should, like, be here. It, but for some of you, maybe you haven't had that thought process. I want to encourage you to consider, for as long as you are here, perhaps the Lord says, you, shift your mentality about your time in Champaign-Urbana. Dwell here. Now, certainly, I know where we live, and I know that this is where we're right across from the university. People are going to move on. But for as long as you're here, be here. Be present. That's what he's calling us to. How are we going to impact a community that we're not fully vested in? So, He's calling us to be present and to have this longer-term or permanent mentality, but here's here's the real kicker in verse 7. He says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now, recall, of course, you've got all the emotional tensions of the fact that they've been exiled there, they've been forcibly removed, and the, the religious difference, the fact that they're in this pagan land. But the word welfare... If we were to study the word, so it's in the Hebrew, it's the word shalom. And it, it's a pretty well-known Hebrew word. Probably you know that it refers to peace, but it refers to so much more than peace. It's safety. It is security. It is welfare. It is prosperity in a, in a wide range. It's a, it's, it's, a word, it's a word that has a wide range of, of meaning. It's a sense of holistic of, of being whole. And the Lord is saying, you should seek the Shalom of where you are. It's perfectly, in my opinion, lines up with where we are in the the day and age that we're in in, in the United States and certainly locally here in Champaign, Urbana. Uh, we' are a country that is not, we don't have a state church, right so you know, there's not like a here, here's what we believe as a nation. We have a separation of church and state. Which, by the way, that's actually a good thing. I won't go into all the reasons why. There is some there's a real gift in that. Um, but you know, as 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 our country has it's you know grown of come of age, there was a time frame when you know probably 80% of people went to church on a Sunday, so there's this prevailing sense of a Christian sort of, or Chris, subculture, if you will, a Christendom. But that's changed, right? We were reflecting on the 1990s, like, okay, in 2023, we're, we're not living in that Christendom anymore. We're living in a very pluralistic society, and, and there's a lot. And, and so, as a result, everybody's vying for control, right? You know, the right, the left vying for control, these I- various ideologies, ideologies, so, it sets us up, well, hey, we're, we're, not, we're not in the, you know, I don't know, majority is not the right word, but we're not the prevailing thought here. And that's exactly what the exiles were in the position of in this pagan Babylon. Yet God says, seek the shalom of that city. And he's calling us to seek the shalom of our community. And, and there's lots of ways of going about that. But to seek it and to pray for it, those are the imperatives. Seek it and to pray for it. All right. And so, what, but, at least for me, there's still a little bit of attention here. Like, what does that mean? How, does, how do we go about that? What's the end goal? How, you know, what are the answers to those questions? That leads us to point three, the coming shalom. The coming shalom. You see, the reality is, in New Testament terminology, in Peter's epistle, his first epistle, he refers to Christians as exiles. And, and, and it, it gives this beautiful picture of these believers who've embraced the reality of where they live in the Roman Empire. And that they are living on the margins but their faith is so strong that they are, it's just this beautiful, in the first chapter, picture of people who have embraced what it means to be exiles, but to pray for the place, to pray for the, the empire, yet to be uh, faithful to their God in the midst of it. We're exiles. But, there, but, but, there, so, but in our seeking of the shalom of the city, it's not, we're not building some type of utopia, because there's this coming shalom, this greater shalom that the Lord himself will bring that he refers us to. In verse 11, the verse that you know, a good portion of our room here probably has memorized, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, and there is that word again, shalom, plans for shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So we're seeking shalom here, but I want to bring you into a shalom. There's something that's coming. There's something that's later. There's something different about those two realities. And then there's a qualifier, verse 12, 12 through 14. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. Ultimately, what the Lord is saying is, I want your heart. And He says, I want to bring you into this permanent shalom, this this eternal shalom. I'm, I'm calling you to seek the shalom that is a very temporal shalom for where you live, it is not to build this utopia. It's, I'm calling you, but I, I'm calling you for your heart to be rent towards me, for you to come back to spiritual renewal, and I want to give you this eternal shalom. And how, how do I say that? How do we know that? Well, if we were to finish out J- Jeremiah, Babylon, actually, its days are numbered. And in starting in chapter 50, God says, I'm going to destroy Babylon. So the goal of seeking shalom in the city is not to bring Babylon into this utopian society. It's to be faithful where I've called you. But this nation was a—it was an immoral nation. It was, you know, idolatrous nation, and you know, it certainly would have. It, it, it certainly, it, it was beyond reason for Israelites to think that God would use this pagan nation to discipline his people, but he did. Yet, there was justice even for those people in Babylon. So the shalom is not a permanent shalom, but God says, I want to bring you into something. There is a shalom that is coming, I, but it's contingent upon your heart being repentive, turning to me, the spiritual condition of this group of people, not the emotional condition we talked about earlier, we, we know that there, there's turmoil, but spiritually, they were far from God. And actually, their geographic reality caught up with their spiritual reality. They had been far for, from God for a long time. In fact, the prevailing, overarching, yes, there were points of revival throughout Israel's history in the, king, uh, the, 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 the kingdom period, but overall, They kept running from him, turning from him. And so their geographic reality just caught up with them, their spiritual reality. And God says, you need to turn back. This was so real, so poignant, that almost 70 years later in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, he realizes we haven't kept our end of the deal. We haven't turned back to the Lord. God, you said that if you would bring us into this, bring us back and restore our fortunes, but we haven't. And so you see this beautiful prayer by Daniel, praying not only for him, but on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his nation. God, we repent. We need to turn back to you, Lord, so that we can enjoy the shalom you've called, uh, called us into to have this permanent shalom. The shalom in verse 7 is a temporary shalom. The shalom in verse 11 is permanent. The shalom in verse 7 is one that we engage in, one that we seek, one that we pursue. The shalom in verse 11 is one that God brings. He's calling us to have a shalom-seeking and prayerful engagement with our community. Yet He's also calling us to have a humble disposition of waiting for the shalom that He will bring and as christians what that shalom is it's it's when jesus returns it's the new heavens and the new and the new earth it's and it's this it's the story of scripture it's adam and eve turning their back on god and then being exiled out of the garden you can't you can't stay here and that plan of redemption from that moment of god saying i want to bring my people back into paradise into the ultimate, eternal, life-giving shalom. And in that story, is, it, it, it spans throughout the canon, and it culminates in Revelation when the new heavens and the new earth come down. It's God bringing shalom down to earth. So what does this mean? There is a lot, there's a lot we could say here, but I want to keep things very simple. How do we as a church relate to our city? How do we relate to the community? We're not called to be defensive against. We're not called to be, you know, just seeking our own purity and, hey, we want to keep a safe distance. We're not called to be triumphalistic. We're called to be faithfully present. To have a engagement mentality, to have a, we're here, we're taking roots in the community. We care about gun violence. We care about gang violence. We care about inequalities. We care about those things. We care about injustice. We care about those things. We may not be able to physically respond. We certainly can pray, but we are called to care and in some cases take action. Um, we're called to recognize that the Lord is sovereign. We're called to be level-headed in the midst of all of the, the turmoil and all of the the, the all of the shouting that happens on social media. We're called to, we're called to be faithfully present and to engage, to, to take roots. And, and really, it's, it's, our application of this is really what it says in, in, in verse 7. It's to seek shalom and to pray for our city. So very practically, we mentioned earlier, Katie mentioned earlier, um, it, we're going to have an opportunity in March, on March 4th, to go and help with Salt and Light. That's one of the agencies in town that we partner with financially, and uh, but to, it, it, to, to go and serve. And uh, by the way, I'm really encouraged by how various congregants are engaged in different um, agencies around town. Um, you know, Empty Tomb, uh, uh, See You at Home. Uh, the Restoration Urban Ministries, Alina Christian Ministries, et cetera, et cetera. And as a church, we've had ebbs and flows in how we have organized efforts to bless our community. But we are we're getting back to that. And so this is a first step. And so I encourage you to consider being a part of that. that that's a small way that collectively we can seek shalom. It's not, seeking shalom is not just a corporate thing. It's a personal, individual thing. As a family, as a small group, those are things that we can be pursuing. But as a church, we want to say, hey, this is we see the reality of this in Scripture. We want to be responsive. This is how we want to demonstrate love in our, our, our community. But we're also called to pray. It's not just about activism. We want Jesus to, be, to, reign, to, to truly reign in the hearts of people. Um, And so to pray for our city. And so February 23rd, that's the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. I want to invite us as a community on that day, not just that day, but on that day, to pray for the campus, for um, Parkland, for U of I, but to also pray for our city, like as a community. Like this is a day where we would say, you know what, as a church, we're praying on that day. Doesn't mean we're not praying on other days. You don't obviously, wait till that day to start praying. Uh, But it's just to say, hey, let's do something together to seek and to pray. And um, as we move forward, may the Lord continue to enable us to be faithfully present in Champaign-Urbana. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, challenging us in a corporate manner as well as individually to think about what does it mean to seek shalom, and even as we're seeking shalom, to be humbled by the reality that we're not building some utopia, but we are awaiting your shalom that is to come when Jesus returns. I pray that as a, not for just TCBC, but for your church at large, that we would be faithful and responsible in our community. Um, Lord, Help us as we move forward, and reveal yourself to us more as we pray over our city. In Jesus' name, amen.